Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey guys, what's up? This is Dan the Fitness Man. We're talking Elk Shape Podcast 2-7. Today I'm going to sit down with a guy named Tim you probably have never heard of. He is definitely not in the hunting industry. He's not insta-famous. This guy is just a regular blue-collar dude. And he's not like a world-class elk hunter. Believe it or not, this guy has only elk hunted one season. He did it with his dad and a friend. And between the three of them, one guy killed a bull, one guy got a shot, and he almost killed a herd bull. First season over-the-counter elk hunting ever. And so I was really just blown away digging in on this podcast about how much research this guy did and the technologies that he took advantage of in this day and age. You really, truly can do a ton of homework leading up to your first year of elk hunting, or maybe you're just not a great elk hunter yet. You're like, okay, or you're not consistent, or maybe you're an expert. Well, he dropped some great knowledge on this podcast, and I was super excited to have him on, and I kind of had to pull it out of him, but just sit through this podcast. You're going to pick up some nuggets, and for you guys out there, mainly that have not killed an elk yet, this one's for you to maybe think about some things that you should do differently going into this season and what you can do from your computer, what you can do to make yourself mentally and physically stronger gear-wise, and how to just put yourself in the best position to get yourself a blue-collar, over-the-counter elk tag on public land. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man. Today, we're bringing on a fellow do-it-yourself bow hunter. His name is Tim. Tim Connor, what's up, man? How are you? Hey, man. Good. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for coming on, and pretty excited to to chat with you because you're in a unique situation where... You're one of the first guys to crush the learning curve and get it done in your very first year. That was last year, right? Yeah, that was 2017, and uh, I didn't get it done. I got close three times, but two guys in our groups got shots. One guy got a bull. So one out of three got a bull. Two guys got shots. Did you ever get your bow pulled back? I didn't get my bow pulled back. I had a monster herd bull within 100 yards uh, three different times, and uh, I, can, I, I didn't have an ethical shot. Okay. Okay. Well, let's learn about you first, Tim. So give us your background. My background. I grew up in the Midwest, uh, hunting whitetails, anything outside, really whitetail, small game, um, any excuse to get outside with my buddies and, and be out ratting around in the outdoors. Um, so typically hunting in the Midwest on the whitetail side, I'd be bow hunting and you can hunt October through December. So I'd go through all the seasons, and but I, I was most passionate about bow hunting. And, um, yeah, I went through college, wasn't able to hunt much just because of uh, college, college stuff. I was busy. I went on internship a couple different times out of state, focused on my career, and, and got out of college. Spent a couple years working and decided it was time to refocus on hunting. It was something I was always passionate about, and I, I loved it. Uh, just other life stuff got in the way and it was time to refocus and, and do it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so you moved over this way out West, what, almost six, seven years ago? Yeah. So I graduated college December, 2011. 
degree in professional golf management, which is a business degree that's kind of unique. Um, it's a business degree, but you go four and a half years straight through college. You don't get any breaks. You go through summers. And uh, you do a couple different internships. That's part of the prerequisite for the program. Yeah. And then uh, graduated college, moved to Roseburg, Oregon, which come to find out now, you see these guys with born and raised outdoors and uh, like campaign stuff. And they're all kind of in that area. But while I was there, hunting was not on my radar. It was a brief stint. I was there for about six months before my boss decided he wanted to move up to Spokane and start a business up here. Oh, really? So he, he wanted to change locations? Yeah. So we were working at a country club, Roseburg Country Club. And he was a head professional. I was his assistant. And uh, I took the job there because it was year-round. It got me a lot of responsibility. And um, for out of college, it was a great job, but it was a stepping stone for a job. And about six months into that job, he, uh, he said, hey, I want to move up to Spokane and start this business called Golf Tech. You know anything about it? You know anything about Spokane? I don't want to answer from you right away, but I, I would like you to come with me. And I, I told him like later that afternoon, I'm in. I looked into Spokane, saw all it had to offer outdoors, uh, geographically, for anyone listening to this that doesn't know Spokane very well, we have access to a lot of really cool country within a couple hours of Spokane. You could be on desert, desert scablands. You can be in the Idaho Mountains. So for me uh, and my passion being doing a lot of outdoor stuff recreationally, Spokane was like, as soon as I learned about it, I said I was in. Yeah, for sure. So all your family's still back in the Midwest? All my family's back in the Midwest, yeah. All right. So you're Lone Star up here and... Washington, and then uh, and then basically you 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 got into Spokane, and when did you kind of pick up a bow again, or did you pick up right away? How that how did that process evolve? I spent we were a startup business in Spokane, and I spent my first couple of years really focused on on just building a client base, getting my career on the ground moving, and uh, in my recreational time I would fly fish. I was totally hooked on uh, trout fishing, and that evolved to steelhead fishing, which evolved to steelhead fishing with a two-handed rod. Uh, and I still love that. I just don't do as much of it. I spend a lot more time hunting now. Yeah, it's a different drug, definitely. My drug of choice, for sure. So you you went kind of through the fishing process, and then you're obviously getting into some wild spaces with your fishing yeah. What led up to last year's elk season? I really want to dive in to a guy like you who you work as basically a golf pro business management. You golfing's your jam. You have clients. I mean, the bow hunting mm-hmm. thing is, I don't know a lot of golfers that bow hunt, so you're one of the first, but I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. Take us through the lead up to 2017 because I'm really going to pick your brain about you know how you did it on your own and how you and your buddies how did you get your hunting buddies and all that kind of stuff together and because who you hunt with is very important so it is let's go through that it is yeah and I'm still I'm still uh, trying to find the right group of people I have some terrific people I hunt with right mm-hmm. now but the way my schedule works uh, we can't always sync up schedules so I'm still. I do some stuff on my own right now, but I'm still trying to find uh, people to hunt with. Bring me back to that question again. Let's talk about last year's season, the the lead up to it. And was that your first year out? Yeah. So 2016, my mind really got started stirring. Like, I need to be out in the woods. I need to be doing stuff. It was intimidating, though. Where I I grew up in the Midwest, everything was public, almost. I grew up in northern Michigan, as far north as you can go, and there's a lot of public land. Uh, and then out here, it was a change of pace, especially where we live in eastern Washington. There's a lot of private, and it's tough to find public land. So but I got my brain stirring in 16, and in 17, I decided I'm going to commit to it. I'm going to make sure I have all my gear, have it dialed in, and... Uh, I was going to figure out spots to hunt. I was going to scout it. I was going to do it right and spend my time. I looked at it, and I wanted to I wanted to hunt for mule deer because I never got a mule deer, and I wanted to elk hunt. So I structured my season that way. I was going to do the first few days of September mule deer hunting, and then 
towards the end of September, we were going to do a big trip and go out elk hunting. When I, uh, talking about hunting buddies, I invited my dad out for that trip. He had never done an elk hunt. His challenge was going to be that he couldn't pull a bow back and he had been crossbow hunting in Michigan. So luckily Idaho is, if you go through the processes and you have a bad shoulder, um, it's possible to get a crossbow permit. So he did that. And then I have another buddy in town who has done some hunting, never harvested anything with his bow. Really good guy, though. And uh, I invited him as well. And he said he was in. Okay. So you guys got you got your crew lined up. Uh, where did you guys decide to go? I know eastern Washington. I don't even hunt Washington unless I draw a special tag. I don't even. Uh, the seasons are super short for archery, relatively speaking. Uh, you have to choose a weapon. A multi-season elk tag, I still don't believe exists, even though I've put in for one for multiple years. It's yeah. it's a rough state. It's pretty it's pretty heavily hunted. There's a lot of hunting pressure, and if there is public spaces, you're gonna you're gonna have to work for it. And it can be done. I got a couple good friends that do get it done every year, but I spend my time elsewhere. What what was your guys's? Did you guys start kind of researching and then go from there? Like, how did you decide where to go? Yeah, so I definitely did the majority of the research. I used uh, Go Hunt and Onyx, both which were invaluable to helping me find public land. With Go Hunt, anybody that hasn't been on there, the the insider function is amazing. You can filter down, filter down your search criteria by species, success rates, harvest size, yada yada yada. It's all good data, and I I like. Uh, like the data side of things. I understood Washington had four seasons and I searched and committed to hunting Idaho. I just wasn't sure if I where in Idaho I wanted to hunt. Knowing that northern Idaho is basically in our backyard, I didn't want to ignore that, but I knew that we were going to have time to do a big trip. So we committed to hunting southeast Idaho based on search criteria I used on uh, Go Hunt. That's, that's what I tell people when they ask me where to Idaho to go because I think Idaho is probably your second or third best over-the-counter state. Colorado would be number one just because of the sheer numbers of elk. doesn't you know? And then you can go to some over-the-counter places year after year. The prices are really good. My second choice is Montana just because it has 11-week season with archery being six and rifle being five. And you can really find some good country there depending on where you live geographically and then i think idaho's definitely third place it's got ridiculous amount of country if you flattened out idaho i don't know how big it would be but it would be very big because it's steep country and you can hunt the desert you can hunt the southeast where you know that borders montana you can get into the frank church wilderness which is the biggest wilderness in the lower 48 i mean you can hunt north idaho brush bulls like i do i mean it's pick your poison. So you guys chose Southeast Idaho. Did you do an actual scouting trip or did you just wait till you get there? We didn't do a scouting trip, but I, I poured over Google earth and would reference Onyx maps to uh, tell me one, if the land was public. And then two, I would save, I would save spots that look good to me being a beginner elk hunter. I don't know that I really knew what I was looking for, but I was looking for spots that I thought looked like they could hold elk, um, spots with water, spots with a mix of terrain. I really thought it would be cool to have the opportunity to to find an elk in the sage. I kind of tended to blend. Uh, those are my favorite looking spots, was the thick timber with some type of sage or, or open nearby with plenty of water and, and terrain diversity. Definitely. So who turns you on to go hunt on X? Who turned you on to Google Earth? Did you just kind of stumble upon it reading blogs? Like, what were some resources that you found this digital scouting tools? Yeah. I don't, I don't know who I can give credit to to turn me on for Onyx or Go Hunt. I don't know if I found them on the internet researching. Uh, did a lot of research, just random blogs, random, random hunting forums, just reading, pouring through that stuff. And, and you start to see the same names pop up. Like, you see Go Hunt, Go Hunt, Go Hunt. And you're like, well, why am I not on there? I should be. Um, you see Onyx, Onyx, Onyx. It, it just makes the game so much easier, especially if you're in an area that, that you have any question on borderlines. Okay. 
So, so digital scouting, what, um, do you have any tips or advanced tactics on digital scouting? Did you use Google Earth Pro? Do you have like, have you learned the preferences back end as far as how to kind of set it up so you can drop stuff? I mean, did you just kind of learn the hard way? I mean, how'd you do it? Yeah, I learned the hard way. My system was Google Earth on one tab, Onyx on the other. I would, I would hop on Google Earth and I would pour over the land, find spots, and then cross-reference back to Onyx. And if it looked good, I would mark it as a probable spot, throw a couple of side notes in there, and mark it. And I would save my maps offline, so I was able to use them. Uh, basically, my phone was my GPS. I, I brought a GPS as well, but it was more of a, a lead weight. I guess it wasn't a lead weight because it was an in-reach and I could text, but I didn't use it for any of its GPS functions. My phone was my GPS. Okay, that yeah, and that makes sense. I think that's a good way to go. Um, when you went down to southeast Idaho in person, were you taken aback at all when you actually put boots on the ground and saw it for real after pouring over Google Earth? What was that like? Yeah, it was uh, it was breathtaking. I've always I've always admired the West. I've always admired the mountains. I had an opportunity to do an internship in Park City, Utah, so I had a taste of being out west and what the mountains were like. So rolling into southeast Idaho, uh, it was it was awesome. It, it's like big mountains. Both you're driving through mountain ranges on both sides. You know they could hold elk, and yeah, you can just disappear into them for sure. Okay, so digital scouting. I'm doing it right now. I got a couple of badass elk tags. I don't have the capacity to get these places before season. It just I don't. I have to do so much work just so I can leave work. You know, the work doesn't go away. You just have to like literally double down on how much work you accomplish so you have time. How much time did you guys give yourself? For the hunt yeah i believe it was eight or nine days and it was the same situation for me it would have been preferable for me to to get down there and get boots on the ground but it was too far of a drive and it was just unrealistic it was unrealistic i couldn't make it happen so i just did my best on google earth and reading through forums and stuff and and uh just had to do it that way okay so how long a drive is it for you guys like 10 plus it was like seven. Oh, that's not bad at all. That's not bad. That's almost doable for a scouting bonsai. Are you married? No, but I, I'm in a relationship. I've had a girlfriend uh, for the last three years. Yeah, that's cool. Well, while you don't have kids, man, do take advantage of those bonsai scouting trips if you can. I have done a lot of those in my day. Yeah. I don't have well, a, lot, a lot of time for those now, but they're pretty yeah. awesome to get boots on the ground. I am doing digital scouting in an area I've never been, and it's just it's so difficult. I mean – you really can geek out, and there's no limit to how many hours you really should spend on the computer. But I want to go back yeah. to what you said, just so folks know. Um, when you had your Onyx maps, did you get just a state, or did you get the elite membership? Did you go premium no. and just get Idaho? I did the the premium, get all the states. Okay, where we live, where we live within 110 miles, you can be in Idaho or Montana, so it, it makes sense to have everything and Oregon's not that far either too so yeah getting all the states is important and then one thing is when you're on Onyx from a desktop you can add waypoint shade areas put layers on there which I want to investigate a little bit what you picked but whatever you do on your desktop it will sync to your phone which is uh, amazing and so what layers did you did you utilize the most when you were doing your scouting with Onyx maps oh man that's a great question so when you're in Onyx Maps, every state has different layers they can offer you. And I'm not offhand. I would have to look at my Onyx to know which layers I used for Idaho. Um, Did you use def- the roadless layer? Did you? That one's pretty sweet. Did you? I don't know if it was available last year. And then did you use the wild, the burn layer with the uh, you know historic wildfires? I used the burn layer. Yep. The the roadless layer came out towards the end of last year. It wasn't there. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So you did that. Um, Each state is different. Some states have more information than others. That's why there's a discrepancy between state to state layers, but there is nationwide layers and there's some add-ons that you can get like Boone and Crockett add-on, the Eastman's layer, uh, things like that. So you're coming from a guy like me who's has somewhere in my office, like, I don't know, double digit chips is what we used to call them, but just a micro SD card. You'd have to update that every year and put in your <laughs> yeah. GPS. And I just, 
I got a Garmin Oregon for sale. If anyone wants it, I just don't use a GPS anymore. I use my phone. And yeah, uh, that would. Be- I have a backup yeah. phone too. I have an iPhone six somewhere laying around that's got the app that I can still use as a backup. So people are like, well, what, what if your phone breaks or whatever? I have a backup, and that's a good idea. Or get it in reach, like you said, for communication. And, uh, and that's a great point. So you got your Onyx maps, but you do you can't zoom in as good on an Onyx uh, Google Earth type layer. You have to really use the actual Google Earth Pro, and um, yeah. and then that's what you yeah. meant by cross referencing, right? Like you could you could zoom in a little bit better with the the desktop Google Earth, and then you just switch over and cross reference with Onyx, and then add notes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and on the Onyx, I was always using the hybrid style map with the topographical, and, and that yep. may sound uh, elementary, but it's important because you're looking at at how steep these canyons are, and and it, yeah, definitely you can look for the top spots and the, the travel corridors and stuff like that. One thing, like specific, you mentioned some states have different layers. Nevada has a guzzler layer because obviously it's high desert. There's water scarce in some places. And so you can put that on. And so now I have all these guzzlers in my units that I can hunt for elk and I can drop pins on them or leave that layer on. And then when you download the maps to your phone, you're basically going to an off-grid mode where you're downloading ahead of time three different options for an area. Like you can get a really high-res, detailed, five-by-five square mile, uh, very detailed map or you can go like the 10 by 10 mile which is what i usually do those are still pretty big size files and then or you can go i think 150 square miles so you have three options there i usually download every square inch of any unit just in case i decide to go anywhere within the unit i got it on my phone regardless of cell phone service and it's super easy to use so yeah, you, you definitely killed it on the digital scouting. Did you use any other like? Uh, did you order any Forest Service maps so you had anything tangible or atlases or CalTopo for topography? Did you do any yeah. of those? So, it's the first thing we did when we got down there was stop at a Forest Service place and get a physical map. Although we didn't use it, it was just a it was just a backup something yeah. to have. Yeah, some of the some of the units in Idaho have uh, non motorized access and. Um, in those cases, you have to, you're not supposed to travel off the main road if you're hunting that day. So they, they kind of want to keep you to a certain road system, although you can travel off of them to, to set up camp uh, as long as you're not hunting that day. Yep, yep. And then um, also with Idaho, while we're talking about it, it's, they don't have statewide elk tags. They have like little areas. Like for instance, where I hunt, it's units one through nine, known as the panhandle. Was yours an area just like that as well, where you had a couple different units for options? It was an area, but we had narrowed it down to a unit that we really wanted to target. That's good. And then the other thing, and I don't mind sharing this good information to people. I really don't. I want them to be successful. I'm not... I'm always in a position where I want people to succeed, and I'm not worried about their success getting in the way of mine, ever, because I work too hard, um, is... You can hunt some areas in Idaho and, and where you are at where it is a draw-only rifle tag, but you can over-the-counter it with archery. That is also a filter you can find out in Go Hunt. So there's there's plenty of research to be done in Idaho, and it's not too late for those that didn't get a plan and always wanted to come out west. Well, the time is now. You ain't getting any younger, and uh, you're going to run out of life before you, before you run out of money. So just do it. Make it happen for yourself. So you did a really good job e-scouting. You got your points of interest. You learned the area. You did your Google Earth flyovers. You did your cross-referencing with Onyx Maps. Yeah, you got a membership to Go Hunt, which I'm a member of there too, and I'm not sponsored. And they, it's it's expensive, but it's to me it's completely worth it. So you did all that. You find you got your dad on the hunt. He got right. Your dad's going with you. Yeah, my dad's going. And then your buddy. You guys have not hunted together before as a threesome. No. And, and did you kind of have a written out like hunt plan, or did you just kind of like? in your mind kind of have a couple areas you want i mean did you have a strategy plan yeah i had a strategy i um i kind of labeled my spots as to here's priority number one priority number two uh i tried to have six to ten spots that i thought looked good although i didn't make it down the list i I had the spots picked out okay so you get there uh it's a seven hour drive did you guys set up a pretty big base camp is that what you guys did no 
No. No, we got there that day, got our Forest Service maps, uh, grabbed a quick bite to eat, and then got up into the hills. And um, the first spot I had picked out, I wasn't sure what elevation the elk were going to be at. So we went in from the bottom of this spot and tried to scout it. And uh, this was in the Sage Flats. And I spotted a pretty good muley buck, but no elk there. Okay. And our plan, our plan was for camping was just to do it out of our backpack, no big base camp. That's really smart. Now that's also intimidating for some people, but yeah, you know, I really think that's the way you're going to have to go. Your so, your first couple years in the elk hunt, elk hunting learning curve is don't be afraid to backpack hunt. I've said it before. You're going to make mistakes. You're not going to carry enough gear. You're going to carry too much gear. But, dude, yeah. you're going to have a better chance of being an elk when you're not wasting precious energy going from a base camp to a hunting area. And we'll talk about another tactic in a second. But energy well, is the number one commodity on an elk hunt. It is. Yeah. And uh, when you run out of food, you got to go back. And so you really have to make that food that you have last. And that best way to last is to camp on the elk. Plus, at night, you can hear bugling a lot better. Elk are way more vocal at night, period. I don't care what anyone says. That's just the facts in Idaho. And uh, if you didn't see any elk that day, you could sure hike ridges at night and get on the elks program and bugle into every canyon until you find somebody who wants to play ball. Yeah, for sure. And my thought was we could be mobile. And for a person out there that's looking to get into elk hunting, you can read about gear for days. Like, you could spend as much time researching gear as researching elk. And I just wanted to keep it simple. And although there is a lot of gear to accumulate for backpacking, you start to add another layer of gear when you think about setting up a base camp. Yeah, yeah, just keep it simple. Get get the best sleeping bag you can afford. Don't be cold. Get a pad. <laughs> Don't sleep on the ground. Get the best backpack you can afford. I really like my XO. I've been running that, and that is the lightest pack out there. Uh, I noticed in your blog that you ru- you run a Stone Glacier. That's a very very good backpack. It it's very lightweight, made out yeah, of Montana. So we had a mix of Stone Glaciers and XOs. Uh, I ran an XO. The other guys ran Stone Glaciers. Okay. And my dad my dad had a uh, he. He wasn't going to be as avid as an elk hunter, so he wanted to keep it on the chief. And he did something like an Alps Outdoors. They make a pack that's brown. It was sufficient. It packed elk well. It was a little heavier, but, mm-hmm. you know, he saved a couple hundred bucks. Okay. So you got you got some basic gear. You, although it sounds like you spent some loot. If you have an XO pack and an inReach, there's, there's a thousand bucks. And then, um, yep. you know, you said you had a pretty good sleeping bag. Um, what was it rated for? Yeah, so the sleeping bag, I I saved a few bucks on. It was not, it was not ideal when we got into the mountains. I don't know if you remember last year, but there was a snowstorm that hit Idaho, like September twentieth, and it pushed everybody out of the mountains uh, in the kind of the area we were hunting. And we got there on the backside of that storm, and the average day was probably 45 to 55, and the average night was probably 25. Mm-hmm. And I had a bag rated for 40. Ouch. And I, I slept in my down puffy a couple nights, and I was just warm enough, but if it dropped a couple degrees, I would have been, I would have really been scrambling. Dude, yeah, of course I remember that storm. I was in Idaho, and I had amazing elk hunting until about the 15th, and then from the 15th through the 19th is when we got hit really hard and our elevation isn't as high as southeast idaho but there was snow up high and then there was just it was pissing rain down low i still went out because i'm foolish i I couldn't get into elk very well a couple days the winds were so high i could hardly hear bugles but I, i still went out but i think i started a two to three fires a day just to dry out warm up go again and i actually killed my bull right at the back end of that storm on the 20th and in yeah. snow and then my dad came in and we killed his bull the very next day in snow which was awesome and, and that snow was gone in a couple of days where we're at but uh in some places i heard that there was feet a couple foot you know here or there <laughs> and how much snow think, did you guys get 
I think in the high country, in the highest country, there was about 18 inches. Yeah. When we got there, it was the same snowstorm. It was like the 15th to the 19th. We got down there the 21st or 22nd, and uh, it was on the backside of that snowstorm, and there was probably a foot in the highest country, which was 9,000, 9,500. And I thought the snow was going to be to our advantage. I thought we would end up maybe tracking some elk or at least you know, not knowing where the elk were, I thought the snow would be an advantage. And it wasn't? It it was. We just didn't track elk. It, it made it easier uh, with blood on the ground. Um, but we found elk from bugling. We didn't we didn't find it find elk. Definitely. Yeah. I, bugling is where it's at. So um, why did you select the 21st through the 29th or 30th versus uh, 15th through the 23rd versus uh, – does your season open the 30th down there, August 30th? Yeah, it did. So why did you choose – like did you feel like that was going to be the heart of the rut or like – what did your research tell you? Yeah, well, I wanted a velvet muley, and I was going to try my shot at that in the first week of Washington. Okay. And then beyond that, uh, I was more or less, I knew elk would be bugling through September, and it's just a matter of hitting it right. And I chose the last 10 days of September only because I thought there would be less people in the woods. I figured 15 to 22 or that 13 to 22 is kind of the sweet spot for people in their elk trips. It is. And actually, when I got down into town, uh, the people I talked to at the Forest Service said, you know, elk typically bugle the best here the first week and the last week of September. So I was pretty excited when I heard that. I would buy that in some in some instances. I Where we hunt, I think the whole panhandle doesn't – well, some of the spots open August 30th and some spots open September 6th. And yeah. I didn't get out till September 6th, which usually I honestly – we'll wait until about the 8th, 9th, or 10th to start. And I got out on the 6th, and like a jackass, I passed on at least three bulls opening day. I I, oh, wow. I called in satellites like left and right. And <laughs> yeah. on the 7th or 8th, I stroked a herd bull, bugling my way into him, and I didn't recover him. And, wow. uh, no, and I it just hadn't happened to me in forever. That was got to pass through and... My arrow looked good, and I gave him two hours, and I ended up bumping him twice, and he never left his cows, and he was bugling, which all that led me to believe I I, I no man land him. You know, I hit too high. Maybe I nicked one lung, but he wasn't bleeding very much, and when you shoot an elk in the right spot, they die quick. They are tough, but you just got to hit him in the right spot, and it was actually a pretty close shot. It was a 30-yard shot. In hindsight, I should have actually shot him for about 20 just because it was so steep and I was on the uphill side. Um, but uh, my point was is it was lit in the first part, first opening days there. I mean, it was amazing. And I, I ended up passing a few more bulls and then that storm hit. And like I said, it kind of shut everything down, which I hate excuses, but it did shut it down until the 20th. And here I am on the 20th with no elk in the freezer i usually kill two bulls a year and i hadn't even killed a bull yet and i was really kicking my ass kicking my own ass saying now why did you pass on any elk you know better because uh, yeah mrs staten would not allow me to come home <laughs> if i didn't kill an elk like we literally live <laughs> off of it so yeah. luckily that since that storm broke dude i shot the first bull i called in and he's a rag bull but i was so pumped he was a big body bull which is awesome we're still eating on him and um, I spent the rest of the season pretty much trying to kill a specific bull, which was a lot of fun. I learned so much about hunting. And that's the beauty of elk hunting, Tim. You know, you're always learning. So let's get into your hunt. I mean, I really wanted to cover all that background information because you have no idea. People are going to eat that up because no, there's not a lot of schools out there to just teach you. Did you think about doing Corey Jacobson's Elk University? I didn't. I wasn't aware of it. I actually just signed up for like three weeks ago. Awesome. Awesome. I want you to give me some feedback when you're done. I sent my dad to take it. I haven't done it yet. I may, but my dad took it, and uh, I noticed that he was much more of a, you know, I think he just approached it a little more intelligently last year. Like, you know, he really, we really made better decisions, and we worked together better. I I generally hunt by myself nine times out of ten, but whenever I do hunt with my dad, I generally just call and uh he's a shooter and so we've had a lot of success that way um i've called in every bull he's ever killed and it's pretty cool oh, that's so that's awesome man. yeah he he's uh he gets it done he's got ice in his veins so we um 
Well, I take that back. He actually killed a really th- like a 320, 330 bull in Montana one year. And it's, wow. it's on video in the interwebs out there somewhere. And that was an interception where we just got ahead of that herd. And um, he stroked that bull at 70 yards with a crosswind. Oh, oh, oh. I don't know. And the arrow, like, on video, like, goes in halfway. And I remember thinking, oh, crap. And then the bull just yeah. seriously took a two, three steps and fell over that fast. He, like, hit it right, well, in, the, he hit it right in the heart. Yeah. And you may have some thoughts on this, too. I can remember reading a long time ago that sometimes there's a bit of an advantage to getting the arrow half or three-quarters of the way in as long as you get penetration into the vitals. Because as they're running, that arrow wiggles back and forth, and it creates damage. Yeah, definitely some hypovolemic shock could occur when you get that much blood into the core. But, I mean, yeah, I I like my pass-throughs because every elk I've usually shot, they run. And I love having two holes and blood on both sides. It just makes it easier for blood trailing. But for uh, sure. I, I hear what you're saying. So what are you running for? What did you run for a broadhead in Idaho? You can't shoot mechanical. What did you use yeah, for? Yeah, that was you, interesting. Tell us about your bow setup, all that stuff. Yeah, so I bought a Bowtech BTX-31, and I shot Easton Access arrows on the recommendation of our local archery shop. And uh, Kuda Point broadheads off of, uh, I can't remember how I heard about them, but I like the idea that they were simple. I wanted something that shot like my field tips in the past that I ran mechanicals and they always shot like my field tips. But in Idaho, you can't, you can't do mechanicals and you also can't do lighted knocks, which was a total boo. I thought that was really, uh, I think it's really poor because the lighted knock is making you more ethical. If you're shooting in low light, you can trace that shot real well. Yeah. There's really no, even Pope and Young recognizes that lighted knocks are cool. But Idaho does not. So I think it's the last state, in fact, of them all. So I think they'll eventually change. But maybe not. But I don't mind the – I do think fixed broadheads are a better decision for elk uh, in case something goes wrong and you don't hit quite where you wanted to. I like the idea of a fix. There are guys that stroke big bulls every year with every type of mechanical out there. So it can totally be done. I just think uh, fixed is a little more forgiving. Um, All right. So – you got your bow set up. You're probably excited. You got there. You hit the sage. Then what happened? Yeah. So bow set up. We went down low, hit the sage, saw that muley buck. I had a deer tag in my pocket and thought about pursuing that muley buck, but he, he skirted off, and, and elk was why we were down there. So this was hitless spot number one. It looked beautiful. There were streams and structure and north slopes, south slopes, east east facing slopes and so we we did a big loop up and around the unit got up in some high country and just traversed the unit and we were looking for tracks essentially and then we came around the backside after probably a 20 mile loop to hit list spot number one and we're sitting on the edge of the canyon looking across and i'm like well why don't i rip off a bugle i mean this is wide open country and i ripped off this is my first ever bugle in my lifetime in the elk woods i practiced plenty enough that and I had done some turkey calling stuff, so I was semi-proficient with a reed call. And I ripped off a bugle, and a bull hammered back instantly. No I way. I couldn't believe it. I, it was surreal. I thought it was an elk hunter at first. Yeah, I bet you did. So then what did you guys do? Yeah, so I look at my dad. We're both real wild-eyed looking at each other. Like, is that an elk hunter or an elk? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, it sounded sounded as real as I would know otherwise. So I ripped off another bugle maybe a minute later and he cut me off i think oh perfect and then and when he when that happened i could tell that elk had moved like 300 yards and i'm like well a person wouldn't cover that kind of space no but anyway i ripped off probably 10 more bugles all in which we passed back and forth i mimicked him he was he was making that noise that oh 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 type of thing and you chuck- I would, uh, he was chuckling at the end of his bugle or just chuckling yeah he was chuckling at the end of his bugle and i started mimicking him and he was fired up and after probably eight to ten bugles i looked at my dad and my dad says let's go and i looked i just looked at him and i'm like i'm looking down this canyon and this canyon is steep like it's the kind of thing when you when you know crawling up the other side you're you're almost gonna have your hands on the 
on the wall climbing. And my dad was 63 years old and, and not in excellent shape. I mean, he's in, he's in okay shape, um, but a couple couple knee surgeries and stuff like that. And he's like, let's go. He's wild-eyed. You know, he's got elk fever. I've got elk fever, but I'm just trying to think my way through it. So we strapped our packs up and we went. We hiked down the canyon, 1,000 vertical feet, hiked up the other side, 800 vertical feet, just just shy of being all the way at the top and found a spot we could camp, which was like the only flat spot on the hill. And that evening, I thought we heard I thought we heard an elk. It was it was a unique noise, maybe a small bull making a a little a little noise, but nothing for sure that evening. Definitely. So did you guys pay attention to the wind? Honestly, did you really pay attention to the wind as good as you should your first bull encounter? When we went into that canyon, we didn't check the wind. He was on the other side at the very top, and I knew the thermals would be coming down. It was in the evening. So as we were approaching that area, we were really just trying to find a spot to camp with the outside chance that we might get some kind of encounter that night. But as we got over there, he didn't bugle back. Woods was silent. We hiked around, found some elk trails, and set up camp and just, yeah, stayed the night. That's awesome. What an advantage, too. Having your camp on your back, man. I think people are already going to just listen to this. We haven't even finished your story, and they're like picking up these nuggets, and they're planning their first trip, or they're coming back, and they're going to be better than ever, and they're going to get inspired and excited. So, so let's take a step back again, because I got to kind of do this story the right way. You always got to back, go back a little bit. How did you yeah. prepare physically for the rigors of elk hunting with your camp on your back? CrossFit. What's CrossFit? CrossFit is functional movement across broad modes and time domains it's jumping moving pressing it's moving and across a lot of different stuff it might mean one day you're lifting super heavy it might mean the next day you're lifting light with a lot of reps but it's always at high intensity at least there's a section of it that's at high intensity that's getting your heart rate up uh really high when I moved to Spokane, uh, I committed to doing CrossFit, and I've been doing it for the past six years. Okay. Uh, which box do you go to? So I started at CrossFit in Spokane. Uh, when you type it in on Google, it's the first one that comes up. Oh, um, that's, that's my bad. I should maybe like pay for some Google AdWords. <laughs> yeah. I followed class programming for like the first year. I made really good progress. I was, I was probably in the best shape of my life, but I wanted to pursue doing it more competitively. So then I, I kind of veered off on my own direction with a couple people and started following some of the online competitive programming. Yeah. And I, I went through that phase for two to three years. And um, towards the end of that, I switched to uh, CrossFit Duratus. Okay. Right on. I know those guys too. All right. That's cool. Um, so yeah. when you, you talked about CrossFit, that's what got you in shape. A lot of people are intimidated to do CrossFit. They feel like they're going to get hurt. I feel like you could get yeah. hurt doing anything you could get hurt crossing the street and get hit by a car you can get hurt snow skiing if you do like mma and you like to roll or do bjj you could get hurt um crossfit definitely has its risks but there's also its benefits and you have to kind of be intelligent about how you the older i get the less risks i take the less squat snatching sessions i do a week things like that you know i still snatch and i still clean and jerk and i still do you know high level skill gymnastic stuff which to a CrossFitter is high level, but by the way, to a gymnast, like a true gymnast, <laughs> yeah. we're doing like little kid shit. But um, you know what I'm saying, and and it's good. But when did you start to understand that the CrossFit and the physical stuff was part of it, but getting through the mental side of the CrossFit was going to help you in the mountains? Well, at, at that stage, I wasn't doing CrossFit to prepare for elk hunting. I was just doing CrossFit for life. And I had competitive ambitions. And I knew as a platform that CrossFit provided the most well-rounded fitness. I had spent my whole lifetime in athletics and through college, more or less strength training. And was intrigued by CrossFit, but had a pretty poor experience walking into my first CrossFit gym. I talked to an owner that was, um, I don't know. It was a poor experience, and I was that was in Roseburg, and I became disengaged with it. But it, and then when I moved to Spokane, I I said, hey, let's do this, let's make the jump, let's figure it out. And at that time, I wasn't 
if you looked at me, I wasn't in bad shape. I was doing the gym thing like most people do. And um, did my first CrossFit workout, which was a simple baseline workout. And I puked afterwards. And not that you should puke after working out, but this was a pretty simple workout. And for me, that was a real, uh, like the light came on type of moment. Uh, I was like, I need to be in better shape. I need to learn more about this. And as you mentioned, a lot of people think CrossFit's dangerous. This is the business side of me talking, but the CrossFit business model, you can open a gym without a lot of experience. So when that happens, the quality control becomes not so great. Glassman's theory, or, or my interpretation of his theory, is that the fittest will survive and that the fittest CrossFit gyms will survive. Yeah. And now I think we're seeing the benefit of the people who have had the CrossFit gyms open for a while, they survived for a reason. They're providing really good coaching, high-level scaling. So being able to scale a workout for a 75-year-old that has poor mobility to a 20-year-old that has competitive ambitions, a CrossFit workout that's done well can scale across all those domains. Well, I'm just jumping on this because I haven't had a lot of guests that do CrossFit. Everybody knows that I do CrossFit. I mean, CrossFitters and vegetarians talk about it the most, right? But once you get immersed in the lifestyle and the community and the culture, it's pretty hard to go try anything else different uh, without being, yeah. let, being let down because every day is a new challenge. And you get tested every day just like you do in the mountains. And the little weakness that whispers in your ear, you get reps at telling that voice to shut up and to push on. Yep. And that that right there is what builds mental toughness. Nobody's born mentally tough. I feel like you got to get reps. And uh, and that's what I have found to be the main advantage is, sure, I'm really fit and I feel great. I feel injury resistant, but I feel like I have a leg up on the mental side of things where I can push past limits and nothing's really as bad as it seems. That ascent in the dark to go two or 3,000 feet it's just a chipper, which is a CrossFit type of workout that's really long, and you just chip your way through it. And it's just one big chipper. You gotta, you know, pace it and breathe and work rest and and manage your rest periods just like you would in a hunt. And uh, it's important. So, all right, we digressed long enough down that rabbit hole. We could go deeper, but so you're in good shape. You're doing CrossFit. You guys pitched you camp the first night take us from there and we have let's see we're about 45 minutes in so we're gonna try to wrap this up in 15 so tell your story as best as you can the next morning we wake up and we go to where we thought the elk were uh which was a sage flat on the end of uh the thick timber and there's a couple bugles and we're just heading that direction and we get to the edge of the sage flat and i look across and i'm like holy shit is that an elk and i look over at my dad and I throw my binos up, and it was a cow elk feeding 200 yards away from us. As we're watching that cow elk, we see this bull crest over. And this wasn't the herd bull. This was a, I guess he was a herd bull of his own right. He had five or six cows with him. But he crested over the hill, and I saw his antlers come over the hill. And it was like, I wish I had a photo. I did a, I did a Snapchat story, but I didn't save it. I see his antlers crest over the hill, and I'm like, holy shit, that's a five by five. That's a nice bull. We're 200 yards away from this thing. I was in shock. I didn't know what to do. And uh, these elk are feeding up this little valley towards us, and they're coming our way, so I figured it was best to be quiet. And this cow's coming up. We didn't see her. She busted us at like 20 yards. That busted that day. On a bit of a side story here, the third guy's coming to meet us at this point. He's coming to meet us that evening. So I'm on my inreach with him, texting him back and forth. And that evening, we didn't, we didn't get into elk. We're just trying to get our buddy over here so he can meet us. And he, he comes in at, like, the evening time and descends into the valley. And he gets down to the creek, which was 1,000 feet down, vertical feet, over, like, I don't know, a half a mile. It was steep. And he says, I found you guys. I'm, at, I'm down by the creek. And we look at each other and we start laughing because we know he has to come up another 800 feet. Yep. And uh, I'm like, no, you haven't found us. You have to just come to the inReach. When you text somebody with an inReach, it sends your location. And, and we were probably texting him as we crossed the creek, and, and he just put that into his GPS. Yep. So he has to come up the other side, and we're laughing. And as he's coming up the other side, he's sending us an inReach message every couple hundred feet, like, am I there yet? He didn't know where he was going. He just had a GPS waypoint, and he was a bit skeptical. And we were laughing back and forth because we knew he, we knew the climb he was doing. It was miserable. Yeah. And 
he came up, he found us that evening. We got a game plan together, talked about, you know, the elk are staging down by the sage. We're going to wake up early. We're going to try to be down there. And that morning, we got over towards the sage, and we can hear bugles. I don't, I don't believe I was bugling to the elk. We, we were just hearing the bugles. And we run into some other hunters. And I'm like, wow, where did they come from? We just crossed this canyon. Nobody else was there. But if you looked at the map, there was a Forest Service road that was about four miles if you hike down the Forest Service road to get to where we were. And, and that's what they did. They said it was their last day there. They were chasing these elk. Um, they were from Wisconsin. Talked to them a little bit. And we knew it was their last day. And, and anyway, that day was kind of over. We got back to camp that evening. And we realized we're not getting an elk out of here if we shoot one. We have to be smarter about this. The canyon's too steep. Maybe... Maybe I could have took a load out, but it would have been pushing it. Yeah. So we were just trying to be smart about it. We knew that Forest Service was real and that they were heading out. We didn't know exactly when, but we packed out and we figured we'd hike in the other side and come camp in. And hopefully nobody was at the gate. And this is where it kind of starts to get really real. So we come around that gate. They're gone. We park, throw our packs on, and we head in. We know we have about three and a half miles to an area that looks like it would be decent camping. That would leave us about one mile away from where the elk been and i leave those guys because i hiked at a different pace and we knew where we wanted to camp so i figured i'd meet them there and i could get in there earlier and get camp set up so i get in there and the two two bulls are hammering off below me uh, back and forth bugle 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 i don't know if i heard 20 30 40 bugles it was like 600 yards below camp probably down in this little valley and I'm sitting up at the top of this valley, and I'm squealing on a cow cow to them, and they're bugling back, but they're not coming towards me, and I'm trying to figure out, like, what am I doing wrong here? These elk should be coming in, but looking back, I should have moved more aggressively on them or, or made a smarter move to get more near them. I was too far away. I wasn't in their zone. But anyway, I heard a lot of bugles, and I was fired up. So we set up camp there that night. And the next day, we're going out towards the Sage Flats. And there's kind of a central area where you could listen to bugles and then make your move from there. So same deal. They're staging down the Sage Flats. Uh, we hear them bugling. We're moving down this ridge towards them. And we hear the bugles coming towards us. So essentially, we got in front of this herd. But we were also on top of the ridge. And the thermals were going down, which, looking back, we were just excited. We should have been on the other side. But these all keep coming along. And... Uh, I hear him coming, I hear him coming, I can't see him. My dad's down the ridge 80 yards from me. I'm Kyle calling a little bit, and the bugles are calling back to us so we can kind of tell where they are. And I know they're getting close, and I let off a cow call, and I see my dad throw his crossbow up. And I could see tips of antlers down in the, uh, down in the woods. And my dad shot real wide-eyed. I asked him how he thought it went, and he said it was a tight shot, but I think it went well. And... We gave it some time. We went down there and checked for initial blood. We found initial blood and uh, could see where this elk had went. And we gave it probably three hours. We really wanted to play it safe. And it was, at that time, it was like nine in the morning. So we didn't have anywhere to be anywhere fast. So we went back and hung out for a couple hours and listened for bugles. And then we went back and uh, tracked this elk. And we tracked it for probably five or six miles. And the blood trail just dissipated and dissipated and dissipated. Yep. And we tracked it for like six and a half, seven miles, and we're up in this pretty sweet wallow, and we hear another bugle coming from the opposite direction the blood was going. And at that point, we had tracked it for probably four hours, five hours, I don't know, a long time, a lot of miles. And we're running out of daylight, and um, we had to call it. We didn't have any trail. We, we just knew the general direction the elk went. Uh, so it was super depressing. It was my dad's first shot at an elk, and he's a good shot harvested a lot of whitetails over the years he just he got excited and it was a long shot and he tried to thread it a little bit and yeah i don't know if it hit him in the shoulder blade but there was only blood on one side and it seemed like it was low from what i could tell so maybe low shoulder something like that but anyway we didn't recover the elk yeah and we're all kind of bummed but we had a couple hours left in the day and we're like, okay, we're going to go down here and listen for bugles. And the other guy we were hunting with, Chris, was like, well, I'm going to go down by camp. You know, there have been bugles down there. And his ongoing joke that whole trip was, oh, you don't need to hike so far from camp to find elk. We have elk right by camp. So he goes down by camp, and I'm sitting there for about a half hour, and I get a text, bull down. Oh. And I'm like, what? What did you do? He's like, I shot a bull. And I'm like, seriously? So 
I immediately go over to him, and he was 200 yards from camp. It was an intersection of three roads, and he was down this one road, like 200 yards. And he stroked a bull from, like, 40 yards. He let off a squirrely bugle. This guy could hardly call at all. Hardly at all. He could hardly make an elk noise. So when I say that, I think anyone listening should get out there and do it first. Like, practice. Get as good as you can practicing. But get out in the woods. Like, you have a chance if you're in the woods. And he had this rutted-up bull. He let out one squirrely bugle. This thing came running. He gave it a couple cow calls. He dumped an arrow into the ground as he was trying to draw back. Scared the bull. <laughs> bull spooked back. He called it in again. He drew, sh- shot, estimated his yardage at 40 yards, shot over its back. Spooked the bull. Cow called. Bull came back in. And the third shot just hit him absolutely perfect. Yeah. Double long. He piled up like 150 yards from camp, and he actually ran uphill right near this Forest Service road. So the pack out was relatively easy. It was Forest Service road for three miles, and we had some elevation change, and I think we were hunting at 8,500 feet, so it wasn't easy, easy, but I imagine it could be a lot worse when they die down in the bottom of those basins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you guys recovered the bull pretty fast? Yeah. he The bull went like 80 yards, died right next to a road. Oh, my gosh. I wish you hadn't said that part. All right. Well, then you didn't have a hell of a pack out, but let's talk about you walk up to your first bull elk. You're part of the process. It's your, it's a team deal. You guys did it. It was we, not me. And yeah. you're going to break down. You've probably broke down deer before, but Chan broke down the elk. Were you pretty intimidated when you walked up to her? Or did you feel like, you know what, this isn't that bad? I, I remember the moment, and it was, it was kind of awe-striking in the size of the animal being on the ground. Just the, the sheer size of it, seeing it on the ground, it was very uh, real. The whole uh, cutting it up, uh, boning it out, that, was not, that wasn't difficult. A- after doing so many deer and some bear in the past, I mean, the muscle groups are the same. It's a little different with an elk because it's such a big body. I guess you have to maneuver it or at least position it into how you can do it. So we went gutless and skinned it, boned it quartered it, boned it, and uh, hung the meat in trees that night to cool. Awesome. Did you guys have grizzlies in the country you were at? We didn't have grizzlies, no. Nice, nice. Okay, well, for an hour, we've talked about just this one hunt. But, man, you guys had success your first year out, and you definitely are the exception to the rule. But I think you had exceptional digital research, everything, gear, archery, all that stuff, your CrossFit, there's correlations to all that. So thank you. Let's talk about mistakes made, the things that you can't read in blogs, or even if you do, you're going to forget to do. What are these mistakes that you made that you hope not to make again? That's that's where I kind of wanted to end our podcast was, all right, Tim, what are the top mistakes that we got to avoid to put ourselves in the best position as a public land, blue collar, do it yourself hunter? I'm still not an expert. Uh, I don't have a bull on the ground myself. On a side note to that hunting story, so the evening Chris got that bull was like day four. And then there was still a herd bull that we spent three days chasing. And I got the closest to it three different times. And this is where the mistakes kind of come in. This was a massive herd bull. I don't, I don't, I can't estimate the size very well, but I can conservatively say that after seeing plenty of pictures that he would have went 350. Oh, yeah. Maybe maybe closer, more. He had like 30 cows with him, and he was just stout. I don't know if he was a 6x6 six six or 7x7 seven seven, because I wasn't counting the points, but he had a monster frame. And this was the bull that was always bugling to me. And the main mistake that I think I made was I wasn't aggressive enough with him. Right. I didn't move in with him. We would sit on the ridge, and we would sit there, and we would call to him. We wouldn't move much. We wouldn't move in on him. Um, I think that was a mistake. I think we should have located them and slipped in on them and got the wind right and uh, just hoped we could have slipped in and got a chance at him because he wasn't going to leave 30 cows. He, and what, what, what would the point have been, you know? Right. Maybe to, def- maybe to defend them, to find another cow. I don't think so. I don't believe so. At least, and he didn't prove that. So we kind of called Tim and Lee and stayed back. And every day I hunted a little more aggressively. And every day I got a little closer to him. And I got within 100 yards three different times. 
one time he was at 80 moving 80 moving closer and i thought about drawing my bow and then he pushed his cows out of the area oh yeah i uh, rounded them up pushed them out they were gone so i think that was the main mistake i made was that we didn't hunt aggressively enough for him but some other mistakes the other guys i hunted with my dad and chris they didn't practice calling a lot and that showed in the woods so when you're hunting with a group of guys you want to all be proficient callers you're a team you should be able to call for each other and if you only have one guy that can call proficiently you're at a disadvantage and then we made some mistakes with gear you know, like the first day my dad brought in way too many clothes, <laughs> yep. weight is packed down way too much. Uh, Chris did the same thing. I went in with a sleeping bag that was not prepared for the weather. I think when in doubt, you might as well go uh, on the conservative side. And if it's going to be a low of 25, maybe use like a 15 or a zero degree sleeping bag. You're better to be warm. You can always shed layers. You don't want to get cold and get pushed out of the woods. Well, and you never know what the weather's going to be. You never know what the other hunting pressure is going to be. You don't know if you got a lot of wolves in the area. You just don't know if the elk moved in or out. I mean, the unknown and unknowable is what you do every day at CrossFit. You never know what the workout's going to be until you show up there. It's the same thing with hunting, man. You just you have to be adaptable, and you have to be alongside trustworthy peers that are positive. All it takes is one negative Nancy, and morale lowers, and no one's going to hunt their best when you have somebody being a naysayer. So it's very important who you choose to hunt with. Uh, like I say on here so many times, you have a finite number of days to elk hunt. Make sure they're with people you enjoy or do what I do and just go solo and put it all on your own shoulders. Whatever you need to do, but you got to go elk hunting. Um, Tim, I wish you so much success in 2018. If you want, you. what's your game plan for this year? Uh, my game plan for this year, I have a Montana tag. I put into the general draw. Yep. I'm going to hunt locally, so I've spent my spring bear hunting, and bear hunting is like a synonym for elk scouting because that's really what I've been doing. So I have half a dozen trail cams out in North Idaho, and um, I just ran cards for the first time, and all of them had bulls on them. So I want to hunt in our backyard because it is that. It's the backyard of where we live, and I could potentially day hunt it. And I'm hoping to fill a tag in North Idaho, uh, fingers crossed. And then Montana has that extension of season, so I may do a big trip to Montana, uh, you know, like October 1 to October 10 type of deal, and uh, focus on filling an elk tag over there. But I, I plan on doing long weekends in North Idaho and devoting my time to really getting to know North Idaho, and then um, hunt maybe northwestern or southwestern Montana for a big trip. I oh, love it, man. There's, there's so many good options where we live. Uh, it is hard to go to some of the other states like down south from where we're at just long drives and like colorado is so appealing but it, man it's a long ways to get to colorado from washington state it really is yeah which is unfortunate but it is what it is so well where can people find more about you i've been on your website i think uh when your moment.com does that sound that's your website yeah so i started I started a little bit of an outdoor project, and, and the goal would be just to help educate people and kind of follow the journey, I guess, because I think it's intimidating when you start to read about elk hunting out west or you start to read about fly fishing or backpacking. I just want to provide some education and, and hopefully lower the learning curve, the barrier to entry for some people. Um, so you can follow the website, www.winyourmoment.com, and then the, or the Instagram page, which is winoutdoors, win.outdoors is Instagram. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely check you out for sure, man. And one of these days, come drop in at my box and while I'm coaching or working out, and we'll, we'll get her after it and keep me posted on how your season goes, man. I think you dropped some great information, and you're the kind of guys we want to bring on. You don't have to be some popular, famous hunter on Instagram. You just have to be somebody that works really hard in the off-season and can inspire us with just your regular over-the-counter stories because, to me, that's where my heart's at. So. Tim, I appreciate, you, yeah. I appreciate you giving me an hour of your time, man. I really do. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you having me on. I hope uh, I hope the crowd can can learn a thing or two from our mistakes and, uh, yeah, just learn from each other. There's, there's a shortage of hunters out there, so I think there's no reason that we, as a small percentage of the population, shouldn't be able to, like, come together and, and be friendly and agreeable and, and learn from each other. I agree 100%. Well, good luck in all your preparation, man, and stay healthy, stay well, and shoot straight. Thank you. All right, Tim, have a good night.
Hey, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I hope you learned a few things. I got to give a shout out to my sponsors, Hard Work, Discipline, and Not Looking for the Easy Way, and Not Looking for Any Handouts. Those are my sponsors on this episode. Thank you, all of you. You come in real handy when it comes to preparing for life, elk hunting, and anything else. Truly wanted to say thanks for listening, guys. I appreciate all the support. Right now through June 30th, which... uh, might expire for some of you listening to this after the fact, but if you want to grab the 21 Days to Elk Shape program off my website, if you buy that, I'll throw in an Elk Shape hat. And uh, that program is legit. I've talked about it before. So briefly, you don't need a lot of equipment. You do need a bow if you're a bow hunter. You need your backpack, a sandbag, maybe a block target to step on to shoot as well. Dumbbells or barbell, whatever you can muster and you can make this program work for you. It's only 21 days. You bet you're doing something every day in the name of better elk hunting. There is intervals. There is circuit training. There is cross training, we'll say. And there is recovery, a little bit of yoga, a little bit of like injury prevention and shooting under duress, dope your weapon series. I'm proud of it. It is interactive PDF, so there is private videos embedded that you can watch once you get the program. You can check out my free training under the Elk Shape website where I post what I do that holds me accountable and maybe will give you ideas for workouts. You can subscribe to the Elk Shape YouTube channel and watch stuff there. And you can always go to the store and pick up swag. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you guys on the next one about backcountry hunting, public land, reading topography maps, as well as how to stay ready for hunting season 365 bringing on a really good buddy of mine who's a certified badass and i'll show you more when you check out the next one so stay tuned peace